community and assurance is how we absorb shock factors. So when we think about, you know, students have these event experiences, they get up, they go to class, they do all these things. You might have a shock factor embedded there that might either press them to, you know, jar them to make a decision or not. But what they're constantly doing is comparing, again, their values, their expectations, and their goals with what's actually happening. And if they're like, check, 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 I move to assurance on each of those things, then when a shock factor happens, what they say is, I can't imagine a place I would rather be to have to deal with this hard thing. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Cap and Gown. I'm Rachel Phillips-Buck, VP for Student Success at Ferris Resources. I have a great guest today, Dr. Sherry Woosley. Hello. Hello. Thank you so much for joining me. I feel like this is like the smartest hour that we do when you join me. <laughs> I'm not sure about that, but I am excited for this topic. So that's cool. Yeah, yeah I'm excited too. And so to see you again. So yes, good. good to see you too. I see all of our friends joining us. Um, Hey, Blair, congratulations. Very happy for you. I have a good, one of our good friends who is expecting a baby. So that's fun. We've celebrated about that around the office. Um, Okay, so while everyone's trickling in, Sherry, today you and I are going to talk about shock factors. And this came out of your work that you're doing with employees and our conversations about how like people are really tired and they're making decisions about is this job, do they love this job? Do they not love this job? All of that kind of stuff. But then also the idea for students in their shock factors and how do we create predicted intervention? So when those things happen, we know how to kind of um, intervene and make sure that students are doing, getting the support that they need. So I'm super excited about this. I have a couple of things I want to show you. So you and I were just talking about, I was saying Matt is filling up my desk with books. So I want to show you the three books that I just got that I want to read. So you recommended this one to us. It's Everybody Writes by Anne Hanley. And she's a comedian, right? No, she's actually a marketer. She is? Yes, but she's phenomenal at writing. So she's funny and interesting and great, but she's a marketing person. So this is your go-to guide for creating ridiculously good content, which I cannot tell you how many people I've talked to who before COVID had never created content for anything, like no podcasts, no writing, no blogging, no LinkedIn posts, like none of that. And then I think because we were all kind of sitting around, like, can I be in charge of a thing? a lot of content creation started happening. So I'm looking forward to that one. This is the other one I just got, which is Influence is Your Superpower by Zoe Chance. Um, This is about how to use your influence to shape conversations and to shape, uh, you know, what's possible. And she says the magic question is, what would it take to make this thing happen? So... Um, there's a lot to be said about that. We may do a podcast about that one, but I'm really excited about this book. And then this one is called stolen focus, why you can't pay attention and how to think deeply again. And it's by Johan Hari. And I bought this after I was trying to read one of my other books and I couldn't do it because I was like, but I got to check my email and I got it. And I was like, Hey, something crazy town is going on with my brain. And so that book I'm super excited about because I think it's going to, it's talking a lot about 
the triggers of instant notifications and emails and Instagram and like all of the stuff and how it really makes your brain lazy in like prolonged focus. So those are the three books on my bookshelf. So super excited about that. <clears throat> okay. Shall we dive into state of the union? Yes. I love state of the union. Okay. Well, let me tell you, there are some really good things going on in our institutions. Um, Rachel's going to chat to everybody. There are three articles in the last month or so about guiding first generation students to success, which I love. Um, I think when we talk about first generation college students, we are talking about the power of higher education, changing family trees, changing four generations to come, what happens in your family. So um, there was a um, article that talks about how, so they call them first generation and or low income. So it's FGLI students, how FGLI students generally struggle in meeting academic standing uh, standards, gaining a sense of belonging and acquiring skills necessary for life, both during and after college. This um, data from the Pell Institute revealed that only 11% of students who identify as both first generation and low income graduate with a bachelor's degree within six years, 11%. So one calculation for institutions to be doing is how many do you admit and then how many are you graduating? And are you doing a great job for those students or do you need to shore up your programming, right? Because 11% nationally is crazy town. Um, so this story just talks about, there's basically four pillars of success for these this group of students, financial support, not only for tuition, but living expenses. So things like essential clothing, attending conferences, traveling home, those sorts of things are a huge risk for this group of students. Mm -hmm. um, academic support. So Texas A&M has a first generation center that has hours all around the clock. So that students are like, I have to work, but I need to come in and get my advising. Great. We're going to have, you know, open office hours at midnight. We could do that through Zoom really easily. So that's the academic, financial, academic, personal and social, which is so much about bringing families into the process, which I'll talk more about. But this uh, Virginia Tech's Office for New Student and Family Programs has a family weekend brunch and a reception for families to talk about what it means to go to college and kind of paint that vision. And then the last one is career and professional development. And so just making sure like we're helping them networking, making sure that they're getting connected. Four pillars of helping our first generation college students. Um, this other article is about how important parents are to first generation college students. And they do this awesome thing. Um, Cardinal First, which is North Central College's nationally recognized first generation program. They have their first generation faculty and staff share in different lunch and learns and that sort of thing, what they learned about life from their parents who did not attend college. So these first generation students are seeing faculty and staff who were first generation who, who give honor and talk about, my parents were awesome. I learned a whole bunch of stuff about them and they didn't go to college. They're really important to this process, which I thought was really awesome. So that one makes me super happy. And then the last one is <clears throat> this thing called Parent University, which is actually coming out of kind of a K-12 perspective, but they are gathering groups of parents and they're just doing a bunch of programming either in person once a month or doing classes where they're helping parents 
understand how to do a great job when their student is in school. So it's super parent-driven and parent-centric. It helps a parent feel confident. And when a parent feels confident, they're more likely to be able to be a good parent to their student. So isn't that, I love all of those pieces. Yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, one of the things that the article said was uh, a first-generation student saying that her advisor was like, hey, can you come to this meeting at eight o'clock? And she's like, I can't because I have to ride the bus and then I have to get on a train and I cannot get to campus before nine o'clock. But even just that conversation made her feel like, I'm not sure I fit here. Like the fact that you didn't consider the transit issue makes me kind of uncertain if you're going to be helpful to me, right? So really good stuff. Okay. And then the last one I have for you is hilarious. I mean, it's about stealing. So it's, I guess, not hilarious to everybody, but the security chief at Florida State University Library, the security chief was charged with grand theft because he had only one of four keys that could access the Robert Irvin Jr. collection of comic books and serials on superheroes. So he, 4,000 Almost 5,000 of these items were missing from the collection. He is charged with grand theft of more than $100,000 for, for dealing in the stolen property. What's so crazy about it is everyone got suspicious of him because he was selling goods, rare comics, like of the collection he was in charge of. Everyone he sold was listed as missing from the specials collection library. So they were like, that's really weird that you're the one with the key that you're selling the stuff. They're all missing. And it's just too great a coincidence that the comic books were stolen where this guy worked. And then isn't that insane? Talk Push about like, like wanting to get caught. I don't know. Like, <laughs> got it for 5,000 comic books. So I don't know how long he's been doing it. I guess he was just like, no one's going to notice, you know. Nobody's what? noticed yet. I'll what? just. <laughs> Shoot, what are we doing? Okay, well, that's the state of the union, you guys. <laughs> that's where we are, stealing comic books and um, empowering our parents. So that's that's good work. Okay, so let's move over to our topic today. Like I said, we want to talk about shock factors we're going to talk a lot about those in terms of how they affect our students, but also I think there's a lot of in our um, theme of change for the year. And you guys have heard me. I keep saying like the, the urgency of change is that what we're doing is not sustainable. And so thinking through like, how do we make sure that we are doing what we need to and understanding the processes that we're all in both for our students and then for where we are. So um, you and I were laughing about this article that I sent you. It's a really like dense statistical, you know, it's a lot. So I'm going to try to break it down. And then I want us to have like real conversations without all of the symbols that I don't even know what they mean in that article. Okay. This article focused on the process of students making a decision to leave an institution, right? So the analogy there is that a student leaving an institution likely to transfer to another institution is very similar to an employee leaving an institution likely to go work in another institution. And one of the things that they said is those decisions, both for the employee and for the student, impact the culture of the organization and also their financial health. 
So if your employees are leaving all the time, you can't find anyone to do the work. You're going to be in trouble. The culture is going to be, nobody stays here. There's no longevity, right? Like just we're here for a couple months and then we leave. Same with an institution. If you have 500 students you bring in as freshmen, and then when you get to their sophomore year, there's only 200 of them. People start to look around and think like, oh, is this a place really where I'm going to graduate? Or is this just a really transient kind of a, an environment? Um, and then I like how this article is like the reason students stay, which you and I can can have some conversation if we think this is true. But the reason students stay is they like to, they want to, and it's how easy is it for us to leave? Like, is it going to be really difficult for me to go? So the first one I think is really about a vision of success here, right? Like academic success. And the reason I'm doing this is I want this career and, you know, I have these goals. And, and then the second piece is about how convoluted is the transfer process and how um, equipped do I feel to be able to navigate it, right? I don't know. What do you think about that? I think this is also based in employee research and they, they make the same conversation about employees and they make it that you have people who want to stay and want to leave. And then the question is, can you stay and leave? Yeah. And they actually do. I don't even think I told you this. They do a two by two grid and they say, I want to stay. I can stay. I'm enthusiastically staying. That's my box. Ah. <laughs> right? And I want to stay and I can't stay. That's, I'm a reluctant lever. Okay. And we know what those. In our that would, yeah. So that would be like, I had a family illness. I don't have enough money. Something um, like that. I, I academically failed out and I have to leave. Yeah. I, you know, there's some reason, but I'm reluctantly leaving because I wanted to stay. Yeah. I cannot stay. Okay. And then you look at the levers and you have, I want to leave and I can leave. That means those are the, and other researchers have even said, it's not whether I can or not, it's whether I have a plan or not, but those are the enthusiastic levers. Yeah, <laughs> right? see, uh, I'm out, right? <laughs> um, and there are also, which I think is interesting. Um, there are also, they call them reluctant stayers. I want to leave, but I can't leave. Ooh. And in the business world, that's, I have a contract. Yeah. Aware. Well, I, I just, yeah. it just makes me think of like, my mom said, I have to stay for two semesters before I can go where I really want to go. Right. Like I don't, I made this agreement. I don't really want to be here, but all right. Yeah. Um, the other thing that I would point out that I don't know why it didn't like when you read that and you see that and you say, oh, enthusiastic stayers. Great. Um, when I was reading more, there was another article that talked about, do you realize that your enthusiastic stayers are either engaged, like they talk about in the workplace, engaged workers and your slackers. Oh, this is a great gig. I just, they pay me and I just sit around and don't do anything. <laughs> yeah, I wanna stay and I can't stay. And, and I, it got me thinking about students too. I mean, there are some who are enthusiastic stayers I'm engaged in this experience. I'm having a great time. I'm learning a lot. I really want to be here. There are also enthusiastic stayers of, I have found this great place. I'm not necessarily here for the education. 
Right. Where not a lot is required of me, but I just get to come and hang out and we'll see what happens. Right. Yeah. That's really interesting. So, so I think, I think that's where it's all coming from this notion of what do I want and what can I, or can't I do? Yeah. I, the, um, reluctant leavers makes me so sad. I think, especially for so many of our schools that are so community focused, one of the hardest things is saying to somebody who is engaged in our community, but either cannot afford it anymore or can't be successful academically. Sorry, you have to go now. And I would say we actually oftentimes err on the side of letting them stay longer than they should because we really don't want to kick them out of our community. We don't, I had a student one time, the end of her freshman semester, she came to me and she said, there is no more money. I've spent all my loan money. There is no more money. I have, I'm going to have to figure out what to do to pay for the next semester. And I was like, Hey, there's no one on this campus who will tell you to keep taking out loans when after one semester you need to be done. You know, you can't, do it for another six semesters and then realize you're not going to be able to pay for it. So that, that population for our campuses makes me feel really sad. Yeah. Um, can I also, um, the other thing that you began with that notion of when people leave, it hurts our organization. Um, there, there is research out there on um, turnover contagion that when somebody leaves, when an employee leaves, that, that it does send, tend to spread. There's even social network research on it. And I believe the same is true in higher ed with students. If, yeah. if, if one person, if your best friend leaves, you're going to think about it. Like, and so I think there is this notion of contagion. There's also more being written about it on the employee side right now because of the great resignation. Yeah. And, and, and what happens to an organization when the contagion, contagion, it's such a scary word. They need a different word, but like what enters the organization and it starts to spread. Yeah. That's really interesting. If you think about like early adopters, so an early adopter, a person who's like, I'll try that out. I'm going to explore that. I'm going to decide if that's a good decision, right? Usually we're talking about technology or like a new practice or something. But if you think about students leaving, you do have early adopters who are like, I'll navigate the process and then I'm going to be an expert. And so when my best friend who I left behind, yeah, is like, how do I do it? I'll be like, let me, I'm going to help you and guide you through that. Um, that contagion, when Matt does spark reports, we look at um, retention by res hall. And so we do it floor by floor. So we can say like in Anderson on the second floor, your retention was 20 points lower than in any of your other res halls. What happened? And I think that contagion is a huge piece that you have students saying, I don't like it here. It's not going great. This is bad. I don't, you know, I'm going to transfer. Are you going to transfer? Let's transfer. And it does become the conversation on the hall instead of you maybe have one person on a hall who wants to transfer, but everybody else is like, this is awesome. We love it here. Right. So that's good. And I like the rest it. of them talk the one into staying or right. the and create an atmosphere for success. Like there's also the culture faction right? For Where sure. the culture is, you're going to stay here and be successful versus the culture is we're not going to work very hard. And some of us are going to leave. Yeah. So, yeah. That's so it's really interesting. We worked at a very small school years and years ago, and we just said, you need to have a ceremony in the beginning where you instead, it's like the opposite of look to your right and look to your left. One of you is going to be gone. You have to have a time where you look at each other and you're like, Hey, in four years, we're going to be standing in the same space <clears throat> together because we're going to be successful together and we're going to graduate. Right. So it's great. Okay. 
so there's this idea of like intent to leave and making a decision. It might be hard. It might be easy. But there's also this other thing, which is called a shock factor, which is like kind of an unpredictable thing that happens that we can't say at this strategic time that you're going to experience this thing. But we can say if these things happen to you, it's more likely that you're going to be kind of pushed into making a decision. And do you have your um, definition of shock factors? Crazy book. All right. My book. Um, well, and this is this is um, out of employee research, but I love the definition. And they say, okay, um, a shock. Not all events are shocks. A shock is an event that jars employees towards deliberate judgments about their jobs. Yeah. So I, I think there's some interesting things there. It's an event. It's something. Yeah. And it's jarring. And then there's this deliberate thought of what should I be thinking about doing or not doing or, and, and so I like that definition. I think those three parts are really big. And I, um, so there's a list of sort of shock factors and we're going to go through some of them. There's some conversation. I love what you said about like, maybe this event isn't like the most jarring or the worst thing, but if it happens to students all the time, then, then it's going to build up its impact, right? It's going to be more impactful because that happens often. Um, so we think about like illness or significant injury, couldn't get into your major, your close friend leaves. These maybe are not places where you're like, I'm out, but it definitely is a, a jarring thing that's going to move you to some contemplation about like, hey, am I happy here, right? Um, and thinking about um, our theme of change and urgency, yeah. I think part of what a shock factor does is it increases urgency. It reduces complacency and increases urgency, right? So you feel like, oh my goodness, right now I have to decide what I'm going to do. I've, I've been knocked out of that complacent and like something's got to change or not, but I've got to make a decision about it, right? Yeah. So there are lots of different paths that we can talk about. The first couple of ones, so I just want to say when a shock factor happens, there's this event, it's like the initiating event. And then you have a, an allowance for a cognitive emotional process. Like, how do you think about it? How do you feel about it? And then you have an allowance for a search behavior. Well, what are my alternatives? What else could I do, right? And then you have your quit decision. So like, yes, I'm going to leave. I'm not going to stay here anymore, but there's lots of variations in there. And so the first path of like, there's a shock and there's actually no thought process. There's, there's no search. There's just a, I'm out. That was so jarring that I don't have the capacity to be thoughtful. I don't want to be here anymore. Right. Um, I think we hear about these on our campuses a lot of times when we think about like aggression, gender aggression, racial aggression, that a faculty member could say something or something could happen in a res hall that is just so shocking and so incongruent with the place you want to be that you're like, I'm out. I don't know where I'm going. I don't know how I'm going to explain to my parents, but I'm not going to stay here. So that's one path. The other path is <clears throat> something happens. You look at the comparison of the promise that the school made to you and the reality of what you're experiencing. So your cognitive decision is like, here's what I thought I was getting into. Here's what I'm actually into. I'm not doing a search. I'm just looking at the incongruency of those two things. And I am going to leave. 
Um, so for schools, we think about this a lot. Like, I don't know where I'm going to go, but this is not what I signed up for, right? This I'm looking around and I'm just thinking, this is not a place that I want to continue to be anymore. Um, and so that one's really interesting because there's a piece in that that's controllable that we're always talking about, which is whatever your promise is, you have to deliver on it. Because that way, when the shock things happen, when they're in that cognitive process, they say like, no, this is what I thought I was going to get. So, okay, maybe I need to, to search or be a little more deliberative in my decision to, to leave. Anything to add to that one? Well, or that the shock is unusual compared to the rest of that. Like, like I was promised this, I've been experienced. This thing doesn't fit, but yeah. it's this thing that doesn't fit, right. not the whole thing, right? Sherry, that's so good because I am always talking to schools about how, like, if you have a terrible school, but Matt is your marketing teacher and he's awesome. What happens there is you say the school is terrible, but Matt's awesome. Like it doesn't get attributed to the school. You don't go and say this school is amazing. You go and say Matt's amazing. Right. And, and what you're saying is the opposite as well. If the school is amazing. And I have a terrible faculty member. I'm not saying the school is terrible. I'm saying Dr. Jones was a terrible teacher. And that's I'm not going to take that class again. Yeah, you know? like, yeah exactly. I We're know there's enough things. other ones. I'm yeah. okay. <laughs> Ignore yeah. him. Yeah. Okay. The other one I want to talk about with shock factors is this is a very deliberative quit. So this is a place where you have some opportunity to make a difference because in the space of we have our shock factor, we have a decision-making process. We have a search process. Where else could I go? Where else do I think I would fit? And then the student decides, no, I'm not going to stay here anymore. And so in that case, you have some wiggle room between the time that the thing happened and the actual, I've decided not to stay, right? Um, and I think that's really interesting because it is the piece of um, I'm looking at my values and my goals and my expectations, and I'm looking around and I'm saying they're not here, but I think I can find a place where those things that are important to me are going to be supported. Um, and so I like that deliberative, like I'm quitting, but we have more room to change your mind. The deliberative one, is that a, like the way that you've described it is I'm choosing where I'm going. Right. Versus I'm choosing, I'm leaving. <laughs> That's exactly right. And, you know, when I would do exit surveys, I would know immediately if this was A or if this was C. So a student comes in and like, this thing happened and I hate this and I'm not going to do this and I blah, blah, blah. And I'm going to, and I'm wow. like, okay, yeah. yeah. Like, yeah. oh, there's not, there's nothing there. But if I can catch it early, this terrible thing happened and I'm not sure I want to stay. And now I'm looking around. I have some, I have some sway. But also I will tell you deliberate leader leavers who you do not catch until they've made their decision. You have no chance because they are like, here are the 18 reasons. Yeah. They've done the the pros and cons, right? Here's my pros for leaving. Here's my cons. (laughs) Right. So you can't find any, like, well, what if we could, what if, what? No, nope. They've decided they're going. So that's a really interesting, but I like the perspective of they've decided where they're going versus they do not want to be here anymore. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about, there are some, there's shock factors. And then there's this other other thing we're going to talk about, which is like just intent to leave, but let's talk about some really, really, um, high predictors of a student 
entering into one of those three paths. So we can still have some, some success, but here are some things that are gonna jar students towards a decision-making process. So the first one is an unexpected bad grade. Um, I think we're all really aware of this one. We're always talking about how you predict it for students, how you say this is probably going to happen to you. We don't know when it's going to happen to you, but you're likely to feel overwhelmed and wonder if you don't belong. And, um, you know, speaking of first generation students, like that's a place where they're like, well, I guess, I mean, we, we have talked to students before who said my, when I got a C, my mom said, well, I guess college isn't for you come home. Right. And you're like, no, 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 no. This is totally normal. <laughs> um, well, and that can be a terrible thing, even for an honor student who's never gotten it. Right. And so it like shakes their whole identity. Yeah. Because, yeah. because the question there is like, I know in my pool of high school where I fit, I know like I'm good there, but now I'm coming to a new pool and is this indicative of where I fit in this pool or is this I just have to learn how to be in college or I don't I don't actually know how to make sense of that. Right. Um, so I always say to mitigate the shock factor of un, unexpected bad grade. I mean, we always talk about rhythm of the academic year in your first year experience classes. You want to be talking about that. Yeah. Um, we have for our stoplight survey, which many of our schools are doing now language in our email that says, hey, this is totally normal for you to still be learning how to do college. And here are all of the ways that you can recover. You have a long time. I'm really good at helping students recover. Just come and see me and we'll we'll work on this, right? So that language of um, you have somebody on your team. This is not unexpected to me. It might be unexpected to you and we can talk about it. And anything you can do to show them other students. Yeah. So it's not just the adults on campus telling them something. It's it's a peer showing them that, oh, I had that happen to you. And this is yeah. And I recovered. Yeah. So it's interesting. I wonder about um, that not only helps the students see recovery, but also takes the shame out of it, which is what I'm always concerned about, because if I'm willing to go in front of a class, I'm a junior and I'm going in a freshman class and I'm like, look how successful I am here. I'm doing a great job. My professors love me. And I failed a class or I got a D or I got an F my freshman year. The, the alleviation of that shame and anxiety, like there's something wrong with me and just saying like that happens. It's that's totally normal. So I love that having students talk about that. Okay. The next one is roommate conflict. Which <clears throat> I have a lot to say about this, but I think I just want to start with saying, you know how when you're not getting along with someone in your household, your days are really hard, <laughs> right? And you love them. A place, a safe place right. to Like you love them and you know them and you pick them and your family. And then let's just imagine now you're in a new place with a person that you don't know and you didn't pick and you have no sanctuary there's no getting away from it. And, and you don't know how to play with them. Right. That's like, I know how to play with my family. If they're in, if that one's in a bad mood, I run away. If that one's in a bad mood, I tease them. <laughs> like I know how to play with my yeah, family. That's so good, Sherry. Cause I was, um, when I was thinking about this, I was thinking about how it's so important that you have a plan for roommate conflicts because you are trying to teach. And sometimes students who have never learned how to play with other people, They've never because their parents fixed that for them or they didn't have conflict or they have ways of coping with it that's not super helpful. And so 
somehow I think with roommate conflict, there has to be a balance between it's really, really awful to live with a person you don't get along with. And, and it sours your every experience of your days. Right. And so we don't want to just leave you languishing there to say, sorry, figure it out. But we also have to have a plan where we're saying you, I I just have this with my daughter. She's having conflict with a girl in, in her school. And I was like, Hey, this is a very uncomfortable place because you are learning how to navigate this, but I'm going to, I'm going to mentor you and I'm going to guide you. I'm not just going to leave you to figure that out. And that's what I think we have to do with roommate conflict. You can't languish in it forever, but I'm going to be an active participant as I'm helping you with conflict resolution, with developing into a good human, right? Like all of those sorts of pieces that you have to have a plan for. Well, even I'm going to help you navigate whether this is fixable or not. Right. Yeah. I love that. I think like some of them aren't, I mean, let's be honest. Some of them are not, (laughs) you know, if this can be recovered or not, right. How would we think through that process? I think that's really great. So just thinking about how are you finding roommate conflict? And one of the things I wrote down is RA surveys. So, you know, so many of our schools are doing RA surveys with students where they're saying like, how's it going? How's your roommate? How's it, how are you collecting that information of what's happening in those res halls? Um, and then also, you know, I'll, I'll talk about your, your iClicker surveys in action items, but one of the things there is just like, if a student is saying, I don't have a good sense of belonging, can we then dig a little deeper and say, is something happening in your res hall that we might need to address, right? Okay, the next one is loss of financial aid. Um, I was just working with a school yesterday. I was so happy because they were pulling their financial aid counselors into a conversation about how to use Ferris and like, what do we, how can we be helpful? Can we tell you when they're not in enough hours, when they've lost financial aid, when they're on academic recovery, those sorts of things. And then, so the identification piece, the connection piece, Financial aid counselors hear so many things about students that they wouldn't talk to anybody else about because they're in such a vulnerable position when you're talking about money. And so real training on how um, it's like Matt always says, like, hey, can I help you deliver that message in a different way? Right. Because you think your job is to to tell them you've lost your financial aid or you need to come up with more money. But we're saying, hey, connection. And then we've got to solve that problem. Um, and then what resources do you have? Like, what? how do we solve the problem? Which in COVID, I think it's one of the good things that has come out of the last two years is that schools have had more resources to be able to help students solve those financial problems. Okay, um, two more for you, becoming clinically depressed, which I'm super overwhelmed with this one in terms of how do we guide our schools to help students with this. Um, there's counseling centers are so overwhelmed anyway. There are not lots of resources laying around for students who are becoming depressed, like, or, or identify as depressed or get, get diagnosed as depressed. So I think it's a really, really difficult conversation to have. Also, we don't want RAs and faculty saying, Hey, I think you're depressed right? We don't want that piece. They should not be in a position to diagnose. They should not. The one thing that is lovely now versus three or four years ago is how much is available remotely or online. Yeah. 
Now that's the about the only good thing because there's a lot more people that need support now. <laughs> but if you really think about it, I mean, I've even talked to campuses, they couldn't deliver anything online no. four years ago, let no. alone partner with somebody else who helps them deliver things online, let alone. So at least there is a little well, the thing is, it doesn't have to be your community resources, which, you know, so for some of these school, schools that are in smaller communities, they just don't have the resource, like, even, even if they could yeah. find the money for it, they don't have the resources for that. Um, I do wonder, as I was thinking about this earlier, I was wondering about the, I don't know how to deliver this message, because it is very tricky for students, but I do wonder about the framing of the conversation that's like, you know, when you're depressed, um, you can't get you, you're like, I would like to be to check the mail today. Like that is on my to-do list because I don't want to do anything. And at the end of the day, when you haven't done that, you're like, I am so worthless. <laughs> like I had one job, it was to check the mail and I couldn't do it. Right. And so again, shame, feeling overwhelmed. What's wrong with me? I'm a slacker. I'm not doing a good job. I'm not going to my classes. I'm not doing all this stuff. Versus helping people understand, like when your brain is not getting the chemicals it needs, it is almost impossible for you to check the mail. It seems like such an easy thing, but your brain is not getting what it needs to motivate you to do that. Right. And so, you know, it's like, we're always talking about depression as a illness, as a, as something is happening in your brain versus some, it's something about you. So, which is, but again, it's a super hard conversation, I think, to have with students. All right, and then the last shock factor that I wanna talk about is a large increase increase in tuition or living cost. So, you know, I, I think it's settled down a little bit, maybe I'm wrong, but it seems like, you know, 10 years ago, schools were increasing tuition every single year at 8% or 10% or whatever to try to get. Well, if you think about over four years, what that means for a student yeah. and for their family, that's overwhelming. Um, also, you know, some schools are doing things like giving their highest like presidential scholarship that is not increasing with the increase in tuition. So over four years, maybe it's 24% more. I gotta, I've got to find this money. Um, so that I, I think understanding that a large increase in tuition and living costs may affect your student retention somewhere then you've got to find the balance right like i'm glad you're making this much money more per student but you de decreased your retention 20 percent, so that's not great yeah. so that one made me sad because i was thinking about that one so often with so increased intuition loss of financial aid and a bad grade you want to talk about academic recovery students and where they just feel super stuck with all three of those shock factors, which was not their intention. They didn't come to school thinking I'm going to get a bad grade and lose my financial aid and tuition is going to go up. Right. So. So <clears throat> um, I do want to talk about. Sorry, I said that was the last one. I, I lied to you. The very last one is getting recruited by another institution. Yeah. So I would like to camp out on this one for just a minute, because again, as we're thinking about employees as well as students, you know, if somebody comes and says, if you're working a job and someone comes and says, why don't you come do this job? And we're going to give you more money and you've got a great community and all that kind of stuff. That's a jarring, like pushing you towards trying to make a decision about it. 
right? It's an event that that's going to jar you. But it's also very true for our students. And you and I were talking about, I don't know that everybody knows about this. Um, just, uh, what is it? The DOJ has, the Department of Justice has a case that came about in February of 2020 where they had to negotiate with NACAP. And NACAP said, so, sorry, Department of Justice case was antitrust against universities. What they were basically saying is, you guys have all of these things in place that make it so there's not a lot of rigorous um, sort of jostling for students that you said, like, after the state, we're not going to try to recruit them. We're not going to poach from other schools. We're not going to offer them incentives if they leave. If they applied and they went to another school, we're not going to go and chase after them. You guys are doing all of that, which is good for the school. But the Department of Justice was like, it is not good for families because you're you want to constantly be in that wrestle where schools are in competition with each other. And we're going to offer you this or we're going to offer you this. And how about if you come here, we're going to give you this stuff. Right. So I appreciate that on the family side. But when you look at what they what NACAP said they would take out so that they're they wouldn't have to have the settlement. Right. It's all of the like you can now offer incentives. You don't have to give students time to accept the offer. Like it doesn't have to be well-informed. You don't have to have a timeline. We don't have to respect that May 1st deadline of like, you've made a commitment. Now we're not going to keep pursuing you. Um, you may not solicit transfer applications from a previous year's applicant or prospect pool unless the student initiated the transfer inquiry. That is not in enrollment management ethics anymore. It's amazing, isn't it? It's amazing. And it happened in February of 2020 before yeah every like the world broke right yeah so thinking through what that means for our schools we have seen a lot of schools that have a higher uh, persistence and retention of their most at-risk students but then their their highest achieving students are leaving and we've we've seen this in three schools over our last persistence reports and I don't know why. I don't know if they're being coached by somebody like, mm -hmm. hey, you're doing a great job at the school. You could come to our school and we'll give you more money or we'll give you some incentive or whatever. Right. They may be leaving to get a job because wages are, are climbing. I don't know what's happening, but it is a really interesting idea that all of a sudden your yeah. class is not your class until like you can't count deposits. Isn't that crazy? It, it is. I think, as you said, it's wild because from a family perspective, having some of this I, jostling is good because to lock to lock a family down before they have all the information may not be fair. Right. It, there's also to me, and this is always the problem I have with some of these big things is they're thinking of it as as monopolies or, you know, trusts or whatever. And yet what's for the best interest of the student? Right. Up until they enroll, I actually kind of agree with some of it that you should be able, but once the student is enrolled, it's it's not, I, we, at least the data doesn't say that it's good for a student to skip around in institutions. Well, and also I'm just thinking first year experience, like it is hard enough to convince students you made a good choice, transition is hard, you need to stick it out, it's gonna, right? It is hard enough when you you have them. 
But one of this, the article said, I don't know that students need their inboxes flooded with all of the reasons to ask what if and constantly second guess themselves and their decisions. So can you imagine that? Like when you're having your worst day in your new school to have five schools sending you emails that are like, hey, you maybe made a bad choice. You could come here and we're going to give you some more money. So um, in 2020, 35% of enrollment officers surveyed in the survey considered offering transfer incentives to first-year students they had previously admitted, but who were attending other colleges. So 35% in 2020, I'm very curious about what it would be now. I think the number would be way higher um, just because of all the enrollment pressure that our schools are facing. So Yikes. Changes the whole world. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. I mean, this is what we see in enrollment, right? This is what's happening. We, um, I was talking to somebody in hospitality the other day and they were saying it's like an arms race. It's like, I'll give you $5 more an hour. I'll give you $7 more an hour. I'll give you $8. I mean, that's good for employees, but it does beg the question of how do we create communities where we stay and where we stick and where we are, are committed. Right. Um, which actually go ahead. That arms race also is not sustainable. No, it's not sustainable. That's exactly right. And so that's a great point of like, Hey, for two years, maybe you can do that, but eventually you're stuck. And, and then you haven't built a thing that's lasting. Right. Like I heard, I heard a CIO say the other day. So what are we going to do when the budget runs out for those? Yeah. Then we better create yeah, some culture that makes them want to stay. Yeah. <laughs> right? like, so I love that because you were saying this earlier, and I think this is one of the things I love about higher education, and that is that community and assurance is how we absorb shock factors. So when we think about, you know, students have these event experiences, they get up, they go to class, they do all these things. You might have a shock factor embedded there that might either press them to, you know, jar them to make a decision or not. But what they're constantly doing is comparing, again, their values, their expectations, and their goals with what's actually happening. And if they're like, check, 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 I move to assurance on each of those things then when a shock factor happens, what they say is, I can't imagine a place I would rather be to have to deal with this hard thing. Um, I think about when I was a freshman, there was an RD whose um, dad died very suddenly, but she was such a part of the community. She was like, where else would I want to be? Like, I have all of my residents and I have my church and I have all of my colleagues. And I, I like, this is the safest place for me to make sense of whatever those shock factors are. And that's a thing that I think higher education is really good at. And also, especially over the last two years has really invested in. Um, Because when you take out the community piece and you're like, we're just doing online classes and then we're making sure we get registered. What you realize is that's not, there's no buffer. If we're not together, if we don't have community, there's no buffer when those things happen. Yeah, there's no support. Yeah, that's right. Um, So I think what's important there is like, if a student has assurance, if they have community, you're in a good place. I would be looking for times where a shock factor happens and the student starts doing that, do my values, expectation and goals line up with what's going on here. And your answer as a sort of agent of the institution would be, no, actually, in this case, we're moving students towards either uncertainty, 
I don't know if this is the place for me or straight conviction that this is not the place for me. Like it's so incongruent. There's such a violation there that then it's going to, it's, it's like a shock factor. And then I don't even have a choice because I'm looking around and saying, right, this is not going to work for me. And um, I think exit surveys are a really, really helpful way to understand that for students. Is there a way that we could, could make sense of, yes, this thing happened to you, but you weren't, you weren't anchored to us enough to want to experience it with us. Right. And you have a lot of experience with, with exit surveys. Do we had a, we had an exit survey. We actually, anybody who left in the middle of the semester, anytime during the semester, not over break, but in the semester, um, when I was, uh, at Ball State University would do a survey and actually an exit interview. And that combo got us really great data. And then one of the things that I loved about it is we could then take that data and match it up with other surveys, but also records. And, and there were things that were really interesting. Like you said, you know, you could tell who would come back or, or who was savable or not savable at some level. Yeah. One of the other things that we did with not only the exit survey, but the exit interview is we tried to create pathways for students to come back. And then we started tracking. And when I was there, and of course that was like 10 years ago, um, we, we were getting about 40% of them back. Yeah, because Sherry, I mean, the thing about a pathway is that if I'm leaving because I'm not anchored to this community and nobody cares about me and I don't feel seen, mm -hmm. and then my community comes back and says, hey, where'd you go? We want you to, we do see you. We do want to be close to you. I'm like, was that, so was I wrong? Was there a place for me and I didn't give it enough time or, right? Well, or sometimes you're the, what is it? Reluctant lever, right? Like, I, yeah. I was out for two weeks with mono. I can't catch up. Yeah. There's no way for me to catch up. So I'm going to reluctantly leave. But if you've made a pathway for me to come back and you've communicated that. And, and so I understand, like you said, that these are my values. These are my expectations. It didn't work right now, but yeah. it's still there. Yeah, that's yeah. right. The pursuit And being able to say like, Hey, a measurement of this community and the assurance is that I had to leave. I didn't want to, and they are pursuing me to have me back. Right. That it's not just, I left and they forgot about me, but, but I actually, that was the right place for, for me because they cared about me. Mm -hmm. Um, so all of those pieces, we have all this different language, right? We have community, we have assurance, we have sense of belonging, we have a psychological sense of, of community, good fit students. You were talking about being embedded, which I love yeah. that language. Can you help us understand? Yeah. Well, I was telling you about this because um, the employee retention literature had the whole shock thing and they were struggling with the fact that, that shock didn't always lead to departure. And so the way that the theory has gone since then is this concept of embeddedness. And it's often seen as between a shock and a departure. And embeddedness is how much are you embedded in the job, embedded in your coworkers, embedded in the community? All of those embeddedness factors, connections, other things make it hard for you to leave or yeah. easy for you to leave. Right. And, and it got me thinking about the fact that for some students, it's, I've got all these things that I give up if I leave. Yeah. You know, that's funny because we were talking earlier about this idea of like a legacy student. Mm -hmm. 
So the idea of being embedded because my grandparents went and my parents went and all my aunts and uncles went and I was always going to go here and now I go here and now, and it's funny because, you know, as I, as I look back and I try to make sense of why I went to the school I did and graduated, right. But was not, I was an at-risk student. Um, that embedded piece is super important because it is true that my whole family had gone there and I would go, you know, past the library that I've heard about since I was a little girl. And I would go through the theater department and see pictures of my mom as a college student in her plays. Like I would be giving up a lot if I decided to leave. And it's not, I don't know that we articulate that well. I don't know that we do a great job. I don't think if you would ask me like, Hey, are you embedded here? I would have been like, no, I don't know anyone, blah, blah, blah. But, but there was a lot for me. Well, and that's, I think the thing that's so interesting about the theory is it's so giant that it's really, really hard to study. But, but I think being embedded can be, I have my friends, I have my place, I have my whatever. It can also be sort of, and I, I'm, I'm going to be um, a lack of embedded with the family. My family gave me suitcases at, at graduation <laughs> high school. You're going to college. No, you're not coming home. I, yeah. <laughs> and, and so I was embedded in college in the fact that, at, do you know what it would have done to the relationships if I had went home after right. I had said, I'm not, I, uh, this isn't working. I'm going you home. You better get no. real embedded. It was not an option. And right. I could have transferred that would have been okay, but there was no way I was gonna be allowed to come home. So when you really think about embeddedness in this bigger picture, what are all of the different supports, all of the different obstacles, all of the different hindrances to to make it harder, easy to go, it really gives you a sense of, you know, if you're in a major that's in every other school, that's gonna make it easier. If you're in a major that's not, like, what are all of the things that embed you in that location? Yeah, that's, I mean, you need like a 300 question survey to figure that out. Like, what are yeah, all going to do that? Can you imagine? Yeah, you can do little pieces of it. Versus that are keeping you. Um, okay, so I want to uh, just, I, I, we always end with action items. I just want to say, I think the overarching theme of this is, unexpected events that jar us towards Mm decision-making, but the way we mitigate that is we have assurance and community and embeddedness. And those are things it's like, it's sort of like, um, this is a thing that happens that we address right now. But the truth is if you've done all of these other things, it just makes it a safer experience when those life events happen, right? In the context of a healthy, safe environment and relationship, shock factors can be overcome with specific predicted interventions. We know what to do when you get a bad grade. We know what to do when you lose financial aid, but the constant investment in the community is the place where we can make the most difference for our students. And I think for our colleagues and our employees, right? So my action items are, first of all, um, as you guys, we're not there yet, so don't panic, but as you're thinking about your not enrolled processes, The reason it's so important to do those processes when your students are on campus is because they haven't gone through the decision-making process, 
searching process, deliberate, I'm leaving process yet. So that's the place where you have some wiggle room to say, hey, so as you're in the decision-making process, how do we address the things on your con list? How do we help you remember some of the things on your pro list, right? How can we help settle down that process to keep you here? And that's way easier to do in person than it is after they've gone home and talked to their parents and made that decision. So very, very important piece. Um, also, there's just a lot. I think we have to rethink for employees and students in terms of this new environment where we have more choices, where we're getting recruited by other places, where we have um, like a desire to stay closer to home. I mean, there's just a lot of things to think through. And I think, Sherry, what, what you and I both have seen is depending on where the college or institution is, what's going on in that city and that state makes a huge impact on what you need to rethink, right? So we have very rural schools where COVID was not a big deal. They did two weeks of quarantine and they were good. And then we have schools, you know, in the middle of Chicago that are having to really consider a lot of different elements. So I think thinking through what needs to be changed, which is our theme for the year. So there you go. Um, also this enrollment landscape. So really curious for you guys about what's happening on your campus, how you're making sense of that enrollment landscape. And I think there's both like the, what could you do and what should you do and how are you careful? And I think your question of like, what's best for students is really at the core of that, that piece. Um, okay. I like this one because we've got to have a mechanism to identify students who are having a shock factor or are most at-risk students. So um, Lisa from Mars Hill is asking about a great exit survey. You guys have just built your mini surveys to help practitioners with exactly what we've been talking about. So can you give a plug, a shameless plug for, <laughs> for your surveys? Well, I, I mean, we do, we have these mini surveys and, and the idea behind them was very lightweight because you don't want to ask students 300 questions like we said, right? <laughs> like that's painful. And then the other thing is really thinking about where to put them. So there is um, a survey that is the non-returner survey. So if they haven't come back, you can ask, where are they? Why are they? Are they ever coming back and try to do some things? But there are also surveys at um, midterms. How are they doing? What's going on? You can start finding those academics if you haven't seen them, how the student's feeling about it. Yeah. Um, there's also a survey right after a term is over. How did the, sur how did the term go? Because things oh. like sense of belonging are so important and that's not going to show up on your academic records. Yeah, that's right. So checking in with students at different points in time can be a way to find those. So that's having right. the mechanism to really be able to both identify some of the shock factors and then to say, we need to do some good um, knitting underneath you so that if one of these things happens, you feel really connected. I, I really like that. Um, I'm just thinking about how we identify shock factors. So for anything I listed or any of the other shock factors you can think about, you should be able to articulate on your campus the mechanism for finding those things and then what you do. How do you know that a student had an unexpected bad grade? How do you know that they're having room, roommate conflict? You have to be able to have a mechanism to identify those things so that you don't leave them in the place of deliberation and searching. You can actually address that through your community. And then the last one I'll give you is that we have to be very careful about our language, especially for registrar business office, those sorts of things. We should be, and I'm thinking about first generation too, we should have training about the language that we use 
that welcomes students into those processes and doesn't exacerbate the shock factor. So it's one thing to find out I lost my financial aid, but then when my financial aid counselor is not helpful, you know, is like, what's wrong with you all this, then, then it's like a shock factor times two. So we've got to make sure that we're doing some good training um, about how we can use the right team language for our students to be able to be successful. So you're so smart, Sherry. I love spending time with you. It makes me so happy. I like how I can just, I did this to you an email the other day. One of our clients was like, do you know anything about this thing? And I was like, Sherry, do you know anything? And you were like, eight paragraphs. Thank you. I did not do, <laughs> well, I wanted to, I only did like three. <laughs> I did myself. I well, I'm always so delighted for you to join me. Thank you so much. You guys, next week I will be traveling. So we won't have our podcast next week, but the week after, um, I think Matt will be back with me and we'll be talking about change. So always good to spend time with you. Have a great Tuesday. Thank you. Bye.